0: Well, this world should be a better place because people like us are Christians. The world is certainly a better place because William Wilberforce was a Christian. William Wilberforce is famously the man who led the political campaign in Parliament that led eventually to the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire in 1809 and eventually to the abolition of slavery itself in the British Empire in 1809. 33. Many others, of course, inside and outside of Parliament were involved in this campaign to abolish slavery, but William Wilberforce was at its heart. And he was because he was a Christian. He was converted in 1785, in part through reading a book entitled The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul uh, by a congregational pastor named Philip uh, Doddridge, a man who also wrote a, of, a number of hymns we sing from time to time. And that book made Wilberforce realize that genuine Christianity was more than merely a system of religion to which people must conform, but it was also a living relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that saves people and changes their lives from the inside out. Later, he wrote a book himself in which he described this real Christianity in contrast to the the false Christianity, the fake Christianity, the merely formal Christianity that so many people of his day thought Christianity was. And after his conversion, Wilberforce thought about becoming an Anglican minister. He thought that might be the way he should do good in this world. But on the advice of John Newton, who was a pastor here uh, in London, he decided to remain a politician so that he could not only lead the campaign for the abolition of slavery, but also work to see the condition of society improved in many ways. And in his generation, there were many others like Wilberforce. And as a result of their real Christianity, this world was and became a better place. And that should be the case in our world today because we are Christians. And to make the world a better place doesn't mean that we have to become politicians like William Wilberforce, although that is what some Christians may be called to do. That might be what some of us are called to do in different ways in some level of government or so on. But each of us has been called by God to serve him by doing good during our lives in this world. God doesn't expect us to do what he hasn't given us, the gifts and the circumstances and the opportunities uh, to do, but he does expect us to do what he has given us, the gifts and the opportunities and circumstances to do. And, uh, yeah, you won't be exactly a Wilberforce, but God has gifted you and put you in a time and place where you are, the stage of life you're in, to do good for him. And what we do may not seem much in the eyes of the world. We're unlikely to be remembered as a person like William Wilberforce uh, was in history. But in our little ways, we can make this world a better place because we are Christians. The seemingly little things that we uh, do can be used by God to accomplish far greater things than anything we could imagine as a result. God weaves the little things every Christian does into the great tapestry that he is doing, the the big thing that he's doing in uh, this world. And only eternity will tell the significance of some little thing you thought you were doing for the work of the kingdom. Whatever our gifts, whatever our circumstances, whatever the opportunities we have as Christians, we can do good and make this world a better place. Now, in the passage that we're looking at this evening, we discover why it is that as Christians we can do good and make this world a better place. As he writes to Titus, the Apostle Paul has turned to the the subject of how Christians relate to the world. As we were thinking this morning from verses 1 and 2, he has described the kind of godly citizens that we should be as Christians. But now in verses 3 to 8, Paul describes why that is the case, why it is that we can be these godly citizens. began to touch on that this morning. We're going to look into that more deeply uh, this evening. And the reason we can be the godly citizens we should be as Christians is because God has saved us. Listen to how Paul describes his salvation in verses 3 to uh, 7. "For, uh, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. God has Saved us, verse five. God has saved us. Uh, What have we been saved from? Well, we have been saved from uh, the coming wrath of God, as Paul puts it elsewhere in one Thessalonians uh, one verse nine. We've been saved from the coming wrath of God, or from perishing forever, as we're told in John three sixteen. And God has saved us not because we deserve it. On the contrary. It, it, it was not because of righteous things we, we have done. It's not because of we had done all the right things. God hasn't saved us because we were really good at religion or really good at morality. At their best, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, as the prophet Isaiah uh, describes them. No, we have been saved because of God's mercy on us as sinners. God saw us in our desperate plight and did something to save us in Jesus Christ. And this evening, we want to think about what it means to be saved by God in his mercy and how that then should motivate us to do good so that this world is a better place. And there are two things I would like you to mention, I'd like you to notice from this passage. And the first is this. Saved by God, we are not what we were. Saved by God, we are not what we were. Paul begins by reminding the Cretan Christians that they were what they were like before their conversions. Look at verse uh, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to all kinds of passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by by others and hating one another. Now, it's not a pretty picture of life before Christ. Uh, Note the word we, you see, Paul's not saying, this is what you guys were like, but I was different, I was better than all of, of you. No, Paul says, this is, this is what's true of, uh, what was true of the Cretans was just as true of him, um, as well as a, a very pious, righteous, devout uh, Jew. We're all in the same boat on this one, Paul uh, is saying. Even a person as religious as he was. And for that reason, Paul writes, what Paul writes here applies to every Christian. What Paul writes may, uh, be, may have been seen in the way you, you lived before becoming a Christian, or it may not have been seen in the way you lived. If it wasn't, this isn't an exact description of your life before becoming a Christian. Thank God that providentially he restrained you from behaving worse than you did. Thank God for that Christian family you were brought up in, that, that Christian church, those Christian influences that, that kept you, Uh, or even just your temperament, perhaps, that kept you from just living a completely dissolute life of rebellion against God. But in principle, what Paul writes here applies to every Christian. This is a life of sinful rebellion against God everyone needs to be saved from. And in his mercy, those who have trusted in Jesus have been saved from this life and have been saved from the wrath of God. And this is what those of us who are Christians once were before we became Christians. Therefore, we can't look down on uh, and pride on non-Christians who still behave this way. We can't look down and say, well, they're just really horrible, nasty people, and I'm better than them. No, uh, as Paul writes, we too, Paul, the Cretan Christians, and every Christian, were like this and and are not like this now simply because of the mercy of God. Never forget who you once were before you became a Christian. Now, let's look a bit more closely at this and what we once were. And there are three things I want you to note. First of all, that we were once foolish and disobedient. Uh, We were uh, were foolish and disobedient. Uh, Our thinking was foolish. Uh, Not in that we were stupid or unintelligent but that we did not have a real understanding of God and his salvation. There are some people who are very brilliantly bright and clever and all sorts of things and can master a, you know, great disciplines of science or philosophy or whatever it might be. But when it comes to the things of salvation, they are foolish. They are utterly ignorant of the truth. It's what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, when he writes of uh, uh, the wicked that their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were uh, darkened. Or as he puts it in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 18. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That is the condition of the unbeliever. Once we were like that, in the way we foolishly rejected the gospel. And in our foolishness, we were disobedient. That is, we disobeyed God and what God commanded, and we would not obey his law. We would not obey his commands. And so if we had some knowledge of the Bible, we would not have known very clearly. We would have known very clearly what God commanded, and yet, nevertheless, we disobeyed what God said. We defiantly disobeyed him. Even if we had no knowledge of the Bible, we had God's moral law written on our conscience. We had a sense of what's right and wrong, and we still disobeyed what, in our conscience, we knew God was commanding. We disobeyed God in spite of knowing right and wrong in the most basic way. And for that reason, we're under the judgment of God and faced his eternal judgment and wrath. But secondly, we also see here uh, that we were once deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and Uh, We like to think that we are clear-sighted about how we uh, uh, live, and we know what's going on in in life, and so on. But the reality is that we are deceived. We were deceived. We were deceived by the world that would have us believe that what it thinks is important, about image, about uh, power, about control, and these sort of things, these are the things that really, really uh, matter. But we're deceived by ourselves so that although we know the truth about God and what he demands, we suppress that truth in our wickedness and rebellion. And we were deceived by the devil who, unknown to us, blinded us in unbelief and held us in captive to our fear of death. However, it wasn't only that we were deceived, but also that we're enslaved by our passions and pleasures. We like to think that we're, as human beings, we're free to live the way we want. We're free to choose to do what we, we like. We're in control of our lives. But the reality is is that we are, outside of Christ, slaves. Slaves to our passions. Our passions are our desires, which aren't necessarily bad in themselves, or they can be bad, are the things that control us, not our minds, as we'd like to think. The things that we want most in life, career, or family, or financial security, or whatever it might be, success in some kind of way, become the false gods we slavishly serve rather than the true God whose service is perfect freedom. When twist, twisted by sin, such passions become tyrants that can destroy us and destroy those we love. But It's also not only our passions, it's our pleasures that enslaved us before we came to Christ. The things in life that God has uh, given us to enjoy, food and drink and friends and so much more, can become our slave masters when we live for them rather than live for God. They become a toxic uh, poison that poisons our, our, our lives. It's like drinking some cocktail that's supposed to be it's very delicious, and yet it's poison. And it might be pleasant at the time of drinking it, but soon it has the most devastating consequences in our lives. Isn't such slavery to passions and pleasures what characterizes our world today? Isn't the character you know you go out in the world today pleasant as it can be? But aren't isn't not the reality that people are enslaved to their passions and to their pleasures? But as Paul tells us in two Timothy three verse four, we must expect that in the time between the first and the second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, that people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And how true. That is, but that brings us to a third thing to see, and that is that we once lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What once characterized our relationships was malice and uh, envy. John Stott calls these two very ugly twins. Uh, they're twins. They 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 they're almost identical, and they're very very ugly. Maliciously, we thought that uh, and, and may have spoken evil of people. We wished evil would happen to people we disliked or, or envied. Someone had, had something that we wanted and in our envy we would maliciously think or even say something or do something that would bring that person down and harm him before others or her before others. Even if our envy was never expressed, it could rage in our hearts and eat us up from the inside. And all that is just a form of hatred. And sadly, being hated and hating one another is all too common in human relationships. Such hatred expresses itself in many ways. It can be seen in the breakdown of a marriage or in a dispute at work or in a political disagreements. As is so common uh, today. But perhaps in our time and culture, this is nowhere more evident than in the Internet And uh, when Twitter mobs, as I was mentioning this morning, attack someone. For saying something that is deemed unacceptable, politically incorrect, the sort of thing you're not supposed to, to, to question. And suddenly, anonymous Twitter people suddenly go for a person and can destroy that person's uh, livelihood and reputation and so much more. It's quite astounding the hateful abuse people receive from people who claim to be fighting in a just and good uh, cause. I was quite struck recently reading an article by Prue Leith, you might have seen her on TV as a television. Cook, but her son, Danny Kruger is an MP in Parliament. And after the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States was overturned by the Supreme Court that permitted abortion all around the United States, he stood up in Parliament and said, you know, I, I'm against abortion. And he supported this, uh, this overturn. And he, even in Parliament, people started t- shouting at him and turning at him. But she was saying in this article he, that he got the most vile abuse for doing that but not only him she got it he's a mother and she is actually pro abortion but she got it too for being his mother he's a christian she's not a christian but he uh, Danny Krueger is a very active evangelical christian but his mother's not but she got the abuse as well and she say why why is people you know why can't people have a be civil but she, there's all this abuse going on this anger this this hatred well here then is a picture of what we once were and what an ugly picture it is it may or may not be exactly a picture of you before you became a Christian. And if it isn't, again, thank God for his restraining mercy and all the benefits he gave you to restrain you from this in a most outward form. For if the circumstances of your life had been different, it could have been you. You hadn't been born into that Christian family. You hadn't had those godly influences in your life. It could have been you. Any of us are capable of the worst depravity. There's the very godly Robert Murray Machine in Scotland, considered one of the most godliness men of his generation, early 19th century, who said, in my heart are the seed of every known sin. He said he, he knew his own heart. And that's true of every one of us. But this picture may be a ex- very exact picture of you, outwardly, when you, before you became a Christian. And if it is the case, thank God that in his mercy he saved you from this life. But however exact the picture is of you individually, remember that in principle this is what all of us were, and this is what we are no longer, because God in his mercy has saved us and brought us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we read here should motivate us then to evangelism and mission, telling others about his grace and mercy that can save them as well. We want to see people, such as Paul describes here, saved as they hear the gospel and respond by repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And if you are such a person, then that is what you need to do. And you can do that even right now, here or virtually, or if you're listening to this later on, or whenever it is. You can, must believe, you must repent, turn away from your sins, turn to God for grace in Jesus Christ from this lifestyle so that you will be forgiven and your life can change. But as well as preaching the gospel individually and together as a church, we must also uh, do good to people in this world, whether or not they are Christians. They might not respond to our gospel, but nevertheless, we continue to want to do them good, just as Jesus did. He healed the, the, the lepers. Only one of them came back. The others didn't. That's often the way it is, but we still do good. Yes, to the household of faith, as Paul says, Galatians 6, 10, but also to everyone else as well. But that brings us then to our second point, and that that is, saved by God, we are now the people we are. Saved by God, we are now the people we are. In verses 4 to 7, we have one of the richest summaries of the gospel of salvation in the Bible. And it is amazing, in this short letter of Titus, that we have two such amazing summaries. The first, in in chapter 2, verses 11 to uh, 14, and then this one in verses 4 to 7 of chapter uh, 3. And here Paul tells us two staggering things about what God has done to save sinners like us. First, Paul tells us that in saving us, God has done something for us in Jesus Christ. And then second, Paul tells us that in saving us, God has done something in us by the Holy Spirit. And if we are to understand our salvation, we need to understand these two aspects of it. There's something that God has done outside us in Jesus Christ, totally outside us, not inside us at all. And there's something that God has done in side us by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Or well, Put it another way, our salvation is, as Christians is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sent his Son to accomplish our salvation, who then gives us the Holy Spirit, who applies that salvation to us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit... Work as one in saving us. So let's think, of, think about this. What God has done for us in Christ to save us and what he is now doing in us. And First of all, we see that we are saved now the people we are because of what Christ, Jesus Christ has done for us. We are now the people we are. No longer the people we once were, but now the people we are because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. How can we describe what God has done in Jesus Christ to save a sinner like you or me? Well, it can hardly be better described than it is, than it is in uh, verse 4? Uh, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit we were in this terrible plight we've just been thinking about. But in his kindness, in his goodness, in his love, God has intervened to save us. And what a glorious but that is in verse uh, 4. But, you know, he's been describing this, this terrible situation we were once were, who we once were, but when the goodness and love and so on. It was because of his kindness and love that our Savior God planned and carried out our salvation. And the idea of uh, kindness here is that of goodness and and generosity. It is goodness actively expressed in what someone does for the benefit of someone else. And the Greek word for love here is the one we get our English word philanthropy uh, from. The idea is that that of uh, love of people being expressed and doing them good in some practical uh, way. And the good that God has done us In his kindness and love as our Savior was to send his Son, the Lord Jesus. It is in him that, as as Paul puts it here, the the, the goodness and loving kindness of our, our God, our Savior, appeared in human flesh, in the very human flesh of the Lord Jesus. The birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus reveals the goodness and the kindness and the love of God as our Savior. In that way, we have been saved from his coming wrath. He didn't have to do it. But he did his goodness, his love, his kindness. He did just this. And That wasn't because we deserved it in some way. Uh, on the contrary, uh, as, as Paul uh, d- t- tells us here, it, not, it was not because of works done by us in righteousness. It wasn't because of the righteous things that we had done, the good things we had done. No, it was because of God's mercy to us as un. Deserving sinners. As Charles Wesley sings, and we're going to sing at the end of the service, Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. It's all of mercy. And where this mercy, this love, this kindness of God is supremely seen, is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, the Lord Jesus atoned for the sins of his people by substituting himself in our place and suffering the penalty that we deserve, the penalty of death. He suffered once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, wrote the Apostle Peter. And on the basis of that sacrificial death, we are, as Paul tells us in verse 7, justified by his We're justified by his grace. Graciously, God declares us righteous and forgives our sins. And he does so because we have trusted in God. We have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified. God credits us with the very righteousness of his Son so that not only are we forgiven, but we're accepted by him and adopted into his family. That's why we have become heirs, having the hope of uh, eternal uh, life as Paul puts it in verse 7. Justified through faith in Christ and adopted as his sons, we are now heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Saving us, God has given us an eternal inheritance in the new creation. An inheritance that's beyond our wildest dreams and imagination. Writing to the Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 8, what no eye has seen nor heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We cannot begin to imagine what God has prepared in eternity, in the new creation, for his people, for us who love him. The God who does not lie has promised us eternal life. and That is our hope as those who for those whom God, our Savior, in his kindness and love, have justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what, in saving us, God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Nothing inside of us. It's totally for us. Done at Calvary. Accomplished once and for all through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. And That is now, part in part, why we are the people we are now as Christians. No longer are we the people we once were, who were uh, living in the kind of life we've been seeing. But because of the goodness and the kindness and the love of, that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been saved. We are different people. And the question each one of us has to answer is this. Am I now someone whom God in his kindness and love has saved through the finished work of Christ? How do you answer that question? Have you been saved through the finished work of Christ? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning to him from your sins, trusting him alone for salvation? How do you answer that question? Which brings us to the second thing we want to see, and that is we are now the people we are because of what the Holy Spirit has done in us. We are now the people we are because of what the Holy Spirit has done has done in us. You see, salvation is not only what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, but also what he has done and continues to do in us by the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in uh, verse 5, he has saved us not because of work, uh, works of By us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us uh, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, what is this washing of rebirth or washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Is Paul talking about two things or one thing? There's often a debate among commentators on that. I think he's talking about one thing with two aspects. The one thing is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. That's the one thing. There would be no Christian life without the work of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin said that. He said, all that Christ accomplished would be of no use to us if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit who connected that work to our lives. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, nothing that Jesus accomplished for us would make any difference to our lives. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell us, who connects us to the Lord Jesus by uniting us to him and in so doing bringing all the blessings that he accomplished for our salvation into our lives. That's why the Father has poured out the Holy Spirit through his risen and exalted Son. Again, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Paul echoes here uh, the words of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. You might remember that in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 33. He says, Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out this, the Holy Spirit. And Paul's echoing those words now in what he says here in Titus. And ever since the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is received by everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's poured out into their hearts. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured out, again, same word, poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And how generous God is in giving us the Holy Spirit. There's no stinting of the Spirit. He has no holding back. You know, he's not just giving us a little a little bit and saying well, that's just enough for you. No, he, he's poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly, as Paul says, generously, copiously, abundantly. He's lavished the Spirit upon us. It's not like someone who, you know, you go to someone's house and they just give you a sort of a, a measly sandwich, a bit of cucumber or lettuce, in it, and that's about it. No, he has a table laden with good things to eat and delicious and wonderful things to uh, drink. He lavishes, he pours the Spirit into our hearts. Uh, being a Christian is unthinkable without the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Spirit, then, is so important. It begins, though, with uh, the rebirth, or regeneration. Uh, it's, it's really the same word. Uh, rebirth, a regeneration. The idea is that, the life, that life is given where there was no life before, as when a new life is conceived in the womb of its mother, Or a dead person is raised to life. There's no life. And then there is life. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the Christian. That's what Jesus spoke of to Nicodemus when he says you must be born again. That's what the Apostle Paul has in mind in in Ephesians chapter 2 when he speaks about our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse uh, 3 when he, he talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were utterly dead spiritually speaking. But then he says, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has, with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead spiritually, but he gives us that spiritual life. He regenerates us. He renews us. And when that happens, there's a washing away of sins as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the outward sign of this washing is baptism, but the inward reality is that through faith we are cleansed of the guilt and the stain of our sins. The washing of regeneration. we have given this new life and we're cleansed from within. And the washing of regeneration is where everything begins in the Christian life. The Christian life begins when, through the word of God, new life is given to a dead soul. And they come to life. Uh, like a seed with physical life in it, God plants new spiritual life in our soul. But that new spiritual life continues to grow, and it will never, never, never die. And with the washing and regeneration, the Holy Spirit also brings renewal. Uh, this renewal may be the same thing as the regeneration or the rebirth, but it's also, it also seems to suggest not so much the Holy Spirit's work at the beginning of the Christian life as the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Uh, the word can also be translated, renewal can be translated, renovation renovation. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the Christian life. Imagine a a great house that's fallen into disrepair and dilapidation. It once was a glorious house, beautiful house, but it's all falling apart. The windows are all rotten. The floors are sagging. uh, The place is cold and empty. It's a complete wreck. But someone buys the house. And as, as the owner moves into the house, and then he begins to, connect, uh, to begins to renovate it by connecting the house with the electricity, the gas and uh, the water. Then slowly he begins to renovate the house and go through each of the rooms, repairing them, making them good until the house is restored to its original grandeur. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in each of our lives if we are Christians. Our lives were once wrecks, as we've been thinking. The Holy Spirit renovates us. He renews us. Uh, because of sin, the image of God in us has been lost, has not been totally lost, but it has been severely damaged and desecrated. (coughs) But when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit reconnects us with the very life of God and then begins the process of renovation that will only be complete when we die or, or Jesus returns and we see him and then we are perfect, then we are complete, then the renovation is total. We reflect perfectly then the image of God. And then we will be perfectly conformed to him. Until then, we live by faith as the Holy Spirit continues to work with us so that we're transformed by his sanctifying grace. Now, do you understand then why we are no longer the people we were, but are now the people that we are? It is because of what Jesus Christ did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And it is because of what the Holy Spirit is now has done and continues to do in us through the washing of regeneration and renewal. Salvation is about what God has done in us and what God has done and continues to do in us. And salvation is also about the hope of what God will do when Jesus returns. And practically, this means that we have the motivation and the power to do good. As Paul puts it in verse, uh, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God will be careful to devote themselves to good uh, works. God has been so good to us by having mercy on us as sinners and sending his Son, the Lord Jesus, to save us and by giving us the Holy Spirit. And because of what our Savior God has done for us and in us, we then must respond by doing what is good. And to underline this point, Paul makes it, uh, last time, right, down in verse 14. It's such an important thing. He actually mentions them seven times in this very short letter. It's so important for Paul. Verse 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be on. fruitful. Saved by God not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy we are eagerly to seek to do what is good. And that's why William Wilberforce and so many like him did so much good and made this world into a better place. But let me end not just with William Wilberforce. I just want to mention three examples fairly quickly. One is Sarah Hilliard. Who's Sarah Hilliard? Well, we might know that C.H. Spurgeon the great C.H. Spurgeon had a number of orphanages. How did those orphanages get started? Well, actually, he put a little note in his magazine, The Sword and Trowel, uh, way back in the middle of the 19th century, in which he said there was a need for a boys' school in South London. This lady, Sarah Hilliard, who was a single woman, uh, not particularly wealthy, it just touched her heart, and she sent a lot of money that she had saved up to Spurgeon and told him to start an orphanage. And he tried to persuade her not to do that. She said, no, someone else should take the money. It must be someone in your family. You know, we don't, And he said, no, I, I believe the Lord wants you to have this money and to start this orphanage. And that's Spurgeon and the elders at, at Metropolitan Tabernacle thought, well, this must be God's direction and guidance, and they started this orphanage. And later on in her life, towards the end of her life, she's a very old woman. She sees some of the boys. She has this one, just saw them. She could hardly speak. But her, her expression was simply said, my boys, my boys. Because here, here was this woman who had done good because she was a Christian to help orphans here in London. Uh, another person uh, is Jeanette Lee. Jeanette Lee was a Chinese Christian, uh, died in 19, about 1962. Uh, she lived through all the horrors of what happened in China. Uh, she had a really difficult upbringing. She had a very bad marriage um, to a person, she, which it was a range marriage, and it didn't work out at all. Her husband was very cruel. Uh, but eventually, she, she she had all sorts of disappointments in life. She tried. She, she was a teacher. She tried to improve herself, but when she it, it, what was insisted of her would compromise her faith, she gave up the opportunity. But nevertheless, wherever she went, she started schools. She taught people. But she, when the communists came into power, she was uh, imprisoned. She was tortured. Uh, it was a terrible uh, time. and she got out, but she got out. She went to live uh, in Shanghai and. Um, but the thing about Jeanette Lee is that every stage of life, wherever she did, she was noted simply for doing good, simply for doing uh, good. And when in 1958, she was coming into Hong Kong, uh, finally. Someone asked her, you know, from all you suffered, why are you still a Christian? So many people have given up their faith. Well, why haven't you? And she said this, I cannot, as many have done, reject the grace of God for me, which is like the love of a father and a mother. And she also went on to say that in every period of my life, now she has suffered a lot, had a lot of hard times, in every period of my life, I have found God sufficient for every need, for my help in every weakness. And even as an old lady, her son eventually had got to Los Angeles, was a doctor, and she was living in Los Angeles as an old lady. She was known simply for going about doing good. Why? Because she was a Christian. And the last person I just want to meet is, re- mention is Tio Saga, who was a South African in the 19th century. He was a, a pastor. He actually came to Britain to train. Uh, one of his sons became the first uh, indigenous doctor in South Africa, having trained also in, 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 in the Britain. And he was just a man who did a phenomenal amount of good through his life and through his ministry. And in fact, in 2011, there was a, they erected a statue for him, in Fabo Mbeki, who was the president of South Africa at the time, came and gave a speech because this man had done so much good in uh, South Africa. And um, on his tombstone, it says this. He was a friend of God, a lover of his son, inspired by his spirit, a disciple of his holy word, a zealous churchman, an ardent patriot, a large-hearted philanthropist, a dutiful son, an affectionate brother, a tender husband, a loving father, a faithful friend, a learned scholar, an eloquent orator, or orator and, and in manners, a gentleman, a model for the imitation and inspiration of his countrymen. And in this little article in the Banner of Truth just a few months ago, uh, they just have this note at the end. The, the, the name that uh, Tio Saga's mother had given him was Sane, which means, what bringeth thou, was abundantly answered in his life. And this is what it says. He brought the love of God the truth of the Bible, the example of a faithful Christian life and the hope of heaven to thousands in South Africa. Now, wouldn't it wouldn't be great of us because we're saved by Christ. We're not the people we once were but are now the people we are because of the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit in us. That we are the sort of people who bring the love of God, the truth of the Bible, the example of a faithful Christian life and the hope of heaven to thousands of people here in London. That is possible because of the grace of God for us in the gospel. Amen.